Thank you very much for that very generous and very kind um, welcome. And it's, again, thank you for the, the invitation to come and speak. Um, it, it's a wonderful place to hold a conference. And this was actually where um, I had my wedding reception 11 years ago, which uh, I'm reliably informed I had a good night on. Um, so it's very, very nice to be back um, in, in such fantastic settings. So I'm here really in um, a sort of ambassadorial role for the, the Royal College, the irony of which is, is not lost on me, um, rather than my University of Edinburgh role. And it's really here just to try and unashamedly sell uh, this RCVS ethics review panel that's just been established. I think this is a fantastic initiative. I think it will hopefully improve the, the ability and remove some of the barriers to uh, clinical research within practice. And it's something that I'm um, extremely keen to, to do all I can to support. Um, it also gives me um, a get out um, from the title, um, which um, wasn't my idea. And um, who says the Royal College don't have a sense of humour? Um, the, the, these are the slides that they've sent me just to talk through. So... Um, in terms of um, clinical research, I would say the vast majority of this is, is done within ac academia at this point in time. And I think sometimes this is portrayed as that somehow people in academia, they're cleverer, they're smarter, they're more engaged. Well, actually, the brutal truth is it's their job. Um, and sometimes this doesn't really come across in some of the discussions in this area, I think. But they're paid, you know, often with state support to actually undertake research. And so there's nothing particularly unique about the skill sets that a lot of people in academia have it's simply part of their job and, and, and their role and they also have a huge amount of support to do this and I think what we've seen in, in science over the, the last two decades really is this sort of shift away from individual groups that do immense pioneering work to, to really big 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 collaborations the, the technology has, has advanced so dramatically whether that's within you know proteomics transcriptomics genomics um, genetics all, all of these fields have just vastly improved in terms of the infrastructure and the technology that allows them to really answer questions that we really couldn't answer before. And I'll perhaps just talk about those sort of the the themes in, 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 the, in the next slide. But I think, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of support for people in, in academia. And again, there's this opportunity in terms of people's job profile. So I think, you know, we need to sort of just make it very, very clear that there's no real... Um, you know, the academics have it very much stacked in their favour to do clinical research. And what would be really nice with these initiatives and hopefully other initiatives is just to try and make it easier for, for people in practice that have interest and ideas that crucially have the caseload in which these answers can be addressed or these questions can be addressed, they, they find it easier to do that. Um, and I think what you're starting to see is, uh, again, in terms of the sort of shifts in the balance of power, is that actually the academic structures which might be able to advance research or their own uh, research agendas with the caseload that they were seeing coming in through their clinics, that's not really competitive enough anymore. And I think this is something that has really changed, I'd say perhaps over the last decade, but it's becoming ever more that the balance of power within research lies to people that have the ability to do the high-end phenotyping and the people that have the ability to the clinical samples that are required to fuel the research engine. And I think this is something fantastic. Uh, I appreciate I'm uh, preaching to the converted here. But this really is quite a paradigm shift away from the people that are in the uh, academic settings towards people that are actually at the cold face doing the really hard miles of phenotyping with precise you know, definition, uh, cases that are coming in through the door and have the nous and the ambition and just the long-term commitment to then go on and collect the clinical samples that are required to do the research. 
And I think that's really emphasised in, in, in Edinburgh where, you know, the Roslyn, although it's famous for dollies, is really, really built on um, quantitative genetics and how that's then been used to improve farm animal production. And what we've seen is from, you know, the first dog sequencing, which really cost billions, or certainly the first human cost billions to sequence, we're now able to offer full whole genome sequencing for £850 in Roslyn now. So this is a, a function that we can now do at this point in time. And even do the single nucleotide polymorphism microarray genotype chips, they're about £110. So the drop in price is way, way beyond what all the sort of computer programmers predicted. And this really then opens up the doors for people um, outside of academia to then start to think about really, really quite interesting and quite detailed scientific questions that they want to do. And I think, you know, David's the person to sort of talk about this, but his team and, um, at, at RCVS, uh, sorry, at the Royal College, have really driven this fantastic programme with Vet Compass. And I think this is just one of those projects that's obviously been in um, synthesis for a number of years now, but it's now at that point where it's got critical mass in terms of number of uh, practices that have bought into the, the concept and the number of consultations that they now have. And this is now allowing us to answer really, really key questions, incidents such as the prevalence of diseases, something which we always assumed we had a vague handle on, we really didn't. You know, it was often very skewed towards the academic work or caseload that was coming in through universities. We really had very, very little idea what, what the true incidence of many diseases were. And this really provides the framework for then doing clinical trials and for then doing objective studies to then see, well, what is the best treatment for these, these diseases? And again, the, the sort of Liverpool is, is an equally fantastic initiative of SAVSnet, although uh, you know, operating on a slightly different premise um, and a slightly different um, aspect. These have great synergy and I think are hugely, hugely important initiatives that we should all do all we can to try and support. Um, opportunities exist um, for both vets and vet nurses to do research and you know my role over uh, the, the last few years has changed from being head of medicine now on to taking the academic lead of all the companion animals and one of my sort of key things that I'm very very keen to do is to try and make people within the, the nursing sort of team really aware of the opportunities that they have to try and uh, drive forward their um, you know what I would argue is an academic discipline and as far as I'm concerned, I'm not particularly hardline about what people would want to study. If it's just simply the best way to place catheters, the best way to rehabilitate paralyzed dogs, you know, whatever it is that particularly motivates or interests you, I would encourage everyone to do all that they can to try and gather information in a standardized way to allow us to understand more about what is the best way to treat the patients that are entrusted in our care. So the ethics panel that's been set up really does support work that's been driven by vets and nurses. I think all that we can do collectively as a veterinary profession to try and support nurses to undertake research, I, I, I think, is to be, to be encouraged. Here we go. Right. <coughs> Apologies, here we go. So, um, one of, uh, you know, from a sort of personal perspective, um, as David sort of said, my, my sort of career has taken many different angles from uh, been in practice a number of years ago, from then working within an academic setting, uh, training and undertaking clinical research, to then taking more of a sort of academic leadership role towards working in um, sort of private practice referral setting, to then spending about the last 10 years really predominantly focusing on working under home office licensed research um, in experimental models. So whilst I'm, you know, from a, a job profile point of view,
be widely criticised about the type of uh, variety of work that I take on. I think it is the thing that is the great satisfaction of basically being a, a sort of clinical um, academic that's interested in undertaking clinical research. And I think there is just much more of an appreciation within the profession and within academia about the interest that exists within practitioners to undertake research. You know, I know this from my own experiences in uh, practice, albeit um, a number of years ago, but certainly liaising with people that are involved in sending cases into Edinburgh and just from wider discussions with colleagues in practice, I think as a profession we shouldn't underestimate the amount of interest that exists within practitioners to undertake research and really the obligation for senior academics to do all we can to make that as easy and as as enjoyable as possible. And this issue of job satisfaction, I think, is something that's very, very important because one area of my work that uh, I'm involved with is trying to understand more about mental health and um, well-being within the profession. And I think the key thing that comes out of both the qualitative and the quantitative research that we've undertaken is this concept of people feeling trapped within their jobs, you know, or feeling like they're doing something that they perhaps didn't think was enjoyable as what they uh, expected, perhaps is more mundane uh, in a large part and is equally punctuated with these breathtaking stressful events and it hasn't really transpired into being the career that they they, they aspire to and this is something that causes um, a, a, a lot of well-being challenges for people and you know one of the things and it's obviously not a cure-all for all scenarios but one of the things that I've constantly try to encourage um, you know, people that are in a, a sort of difficult position is perhaps potentially realigning workload and realigning jobs into something which offers them more opportunities for job satisfaction and reward. And I think undertaking research is one of those things that I think is, is very, very straightforward to do in a lot of cases um, and is something that can be immensely rewarding. And this was something that I was exposed to as an undergraduate. And I think once you get into this sort of cycle of basically discussing ideas with colleagues and with friends, thinking about how you're going to answer that, seeing the work then being underdone, undertaken and then being published and then those findings actually having some impact on future clinical care, I think the gratification um, that people get out of that process I think can't be overstated. And again, just as my role has sort of slightly changed in Edinburgh, I'm now involved in trying to provide academic mentorship to our practitioner group within our primary care setting. And this is an environment that I suspect is very, very much like many practices in which there's been no culture and no expectation of them to provide research. They provide a clinical service and they provide a teaching um, environment. And so really it's taken a bit of time to try and encourage them to think about the research opportunities that exist because they deal with the caseload that is most important for us to address with. They deal with the common problems that are seen by many, many animals rather than the you know, bizarrely esoteric Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that dermatology might see once in a generation. It's much better if we try and you know, concentrate effort on treating diseases that are commonly seen and are really significant uh, issues of morbidity and mortality. And I think from a personal perspective, we can try and do this just by simply standardising treatment protocols. And so really, if we're then in a position, if we all just agree to treat conditions in a certain way, is the almost entry-level piece of research, we can then report, well, we've treated this condition in the standardised way, and these are our clinical outcomes. And that in itself, although that's the easiest and arguably the most least robust type of evidence to provide clinical direction and best practice, it nonetheless, for a lot of conditions that are very difficult to treat and are accepted to be difficult to treat with good outcomes or with low morbidity, it actually can be a very, very useful contribution to the field and can provide the foundation that's required for then the, the randomised trials at a later time point that really objectively assess the value of that treatment. 
And just very sort of modest things that we're interested in, again, people with people that have had very little interest or background or exposure to research activities, is just simply standardising treatment on nasal aspergillosis caseload, upon which we've now been able to demonstrate that we've had complete success with a, a, an approach that we've tried. And that then is something that will then be published as a unit of work and will then provide for this sort of research inexperienced colleague an opportunity to then go on and address in you know, a more objective trial basis the true value of, of, of this new technique that this person has then developed. I think some of this earlier discussions about guidelines I think was also very very interesting because within the area that I was working in most in, in, in Edinburgh there is an absolute clear expectation if you're part of the senior academic team and quite frankly if you come as a trained member of the team you adhere to the guidelines that we as a group define for the diseases of our research portfolio which um, at this point range on the, the gastrointestinal renal and liver. And as far as I was quite relaxed from a personal point of view, exactly what those guidelines would be, but there is an absolute expectation that everyone mucks in and, and follows these. And there were times where, you know, for owners' reasons or, you know, for various um, patient-level um, issues it may not be possible but the default pathway nonetheless is that everyone tries to do all they can to follow these guidelines and this will then hopefully get us over this hump that we currently have um, within our own institute where you know if we want to look at the best way to treat IMHA historically what we find is that the last 60 cases that we've seen in the hospital have been treated in 60 different ways. So any clinical samples that we've then banked from these we simply can't use them to interrogate either for novel markers of um, disease outcomes or genetic predictors of, of response, we simply cannot mine that database for anything useful. So this issue of everyone following guidelines is extraordinarily useful. And if you have enough buy-in from practices to allow you to do that, then I think it's actually a very, very, very good place to start to begin that. And the one thing um, that I would sort of, again, try and emphasise to practitioners in the audience, and again, this is perhaps preaching to the converted, is just the absolute ease of this. Um, and I think having that sort of opportunistic uh, mindset, and, you know, one of the ones that sticks in my mind was when, as a resident, I went into hospital and had a GA to have a, a, a lymph node excised. I was given a whole load of medication before I had the GA. And I was slightly anxious as to what I was given in just this sort of... Um, pillbox and so we had a discussion with the anaesthetist about what these were and having just treated a whole range of um, gastroesophageal reflux complications in cats I thought this idea of giving anti-gastric uh, uh, anti-ulcerogenic um, sort of gastroprotectant medication before GA is a standard treatment in humans at that time seemed like quite an interesting idea and so we go I wrote a grant with colleagues uh, with uh, particularly with Amber Pantini um, to then go on to actually look at a control trial just to see whether pre-administration of a miprazole was um, beneficial in reducing the incidence of gastro reflux on a standardized cohort um, um, uh, when I was a resident in Cambridge and as far as I was concerned, Amber perhaps might disagree, but it was actually very straightforward. We just had to organise the randomisation. We then had to organise the consent process. And it was actually a very, very straightforward um, process by which we were able to define that amiprazole preoperatively was a benefit in reducing gastroesophageal reflux. And that's something that in many ways is much almost easier to do in practice than it is in the academic setting because of the fact that you're dealing with a much more standardised caseload. And then often in a lot of scenarios, particularly with some of the elective procedures that are undertaken in practice, it's easier to recruit these cases in. So just on this sort of theme, just perhaps just to again highlight this idea that, you know, the cases that are seen in practice are the ones that I would really encourage as a profession to really think about, because these are the really, really important things for us to go on to do. 
And perhaps to sort of finally highlight is that I think one of the things that is absolutely undeniable is that the structure of the profession is changing perhaps at a pace faster than, than any of us would have previously predicted. And this with the increased corporatization of the profession, um, whatever your take on that, um, whether you think this is a good or a bad thing, the fact is it's happening, um, and it's almost a trend which almost invariably is going to continue. And I would argue this actually brings great opportunities for clinical research. It brings an opportunity for practices to come together, to work together um, in a way that wasn't really that feasible before, for people to buy into the standardized use of protocols, for people to buy into the idea of doing trials, for us to have an ease of the same computing system. This is one very, very simple pragmatic way, uh, feature. I think this brings really unrivaled opportunities. So, you know, again, whatever, um, you know, we think about this sort of demographic shift in the profession, I think this is something that potentially for clinical research could be a, a, a real awakening and a real opportunity. So hopefully I've tried to set the scene that I think the balance of power is coming back to practitioners um, and hopefully, you know, you're going to be in the box seat in terms of driving forward uh, future advances within the profession. So, uh, again, in terms of ethical review of um, uh, clinical research, I think the important thing, as we're, uh, I'm sure, all aware in this room, is it's really just now absolutely expected. Um, and I think one of the things that the RCVS were keen for me to highlight is it's just part of good clinical practice, and it's part of the code um, of, 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 of practice, really. And this is particularly around this issue of informed consent, from their point of view, is, is absolutely key. The other thing, just to, again to highlight, is this idea of self-protection. This is something where, as if you've actually followed all the guidelines, you've ensured that there is um, a, you know, clear communication in writing, where the owner's had time to ask questions and to digest the information that's been offered. You've shown that you've essentially followed the rules, that this has been independently reviewed by an ethics review panel. This is all very, very positive. Um, and if there are problems down the line, then at least allows you to, you know, enter into a dialogue with the owner um, that you've done uh, everything by best practice and that you've done everything that you can to ensure good outcomes for, 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 her, her, for the, the person's uh, animals. And perhaps the most brutally uh, pragmatic point, even if people feel like they can bypass this and wing it or if they feel like it's so innocuous they don't need ethical review, you'll just come down at the point of publication. And so really it's now very standard in most journals, if not all now really, is that there has to be some evidence that this work that you're presenting in this paper has undergone an ethical review process um, and that is um, you know, essentially being accepted um, to be an acceptable uh, programme of work by an independent review body. So the, the college were just keen for me just to highlight that, again, <clears throat> the, the, there is this need to be compliant with uh, the Code of Professional Conduct. And there's a number of provisions in the Code of Conduct that's relevant to research. Um, and as I've mentioned, this particularly relies to consent and also confidentiality. And the other thing is just this idea about trying to um, make sure that this truly is informed consent. And there's a lot of quite interesting research going on about what actually constitutes informed consent, um, how we actually make sure that owners genuinely do understand all aspects of what we're going to try and do, and that they're not just being steamrolled into, um, you know, essentially following whatever their, their, their vet advises. Um, but I think doing all that you can to try and make owners absolutely aware of your plans, um, giving them plenty of time to ask questions and to opt out and to make them aware that by opting out, they're not in any way going to compromise their, their future care of their, their pets. 
And so again, I think a lot of this is just very, very straightforward and is obvious to us all about using language that's appropriate for, for, for the client and explaining and avoiding uh, clinical ter uh, terminology. And really then informing clients about how the data is going to be stored and any future use of data or samples. Um, and, and, and just making sure that we follow what we would all understand to be best practice. Um, and really treating uh, the clients as we would like to be treated if we were part of a trial or if our pets were being part of a trial. And these are just a couple of quotes the colleges included from JSAB and the Vet Record. I think actually the Vet Journal was the one that was really the furthest ahead of the curve on this. They were, for a number of years, have been very, very clear in terms of you having to provide an ethic review um, uh, sort of number um, that really confirmed that this had been through an ethical review process. But now almost all journals will have this. Um, JSAB states that authors applying for publication must verify that relevant legal and ethical requirements have been met and the vet record has a very very similar thing saying that the studies should be approved by an ethics review committee by the institute of practice at which the studies were conducted um, and uh, it's again just highlighting the fact that a lot of these are practice driven and that there's a, a challenge for them with, with the, the, the development of the committees and what i was just going to talk a little bit about and i again i apologize if this is blindingly obvious to everyone in the room but what I would encourage when people get in touch with me to discuss ideas about studies is to encourage them to think about what is the legislative body that's going to be overseeing their research, because I think this is really the absolute key thing. And I would, in a very simplistic way, try to split this down is to, is this data to be collected as part of a standard veterinary care or is this data going to be collected or samples or whatever um, procedures are going to be undertaken outside of standard veterinary care? And the key point here is that if you're undertaking it and it runs alongside the standard veterinary care, then most ethics committees would accept that that can be reviewed under the Veterinary Surgeons Act and that could be seen as part of the ongoing clinical care. So the sorts of works that we would undertake in that, and we have a veterinary ethics review um, uh, committee at, at Edinburgh, as all academic institutes have, is that we would put in proposals, and the typical ones would be is we're going to blood sample a dog at initial point of um, admittance or initial point of workup, and rather than throwing the surplus clinical samples into the bin, we would like to retain them and then use them uh, for future studies, whether that's proteomic, genomic analysis, or just focused metabolic studies, you know, whatever that might be, we will, with client consent, retain those and use them in an anonymized way for future, uh, for future research purposes. Where it becomes more complicated is where you want to undertake a procedure um, on a client's pet that falls outside the standard care um, of that patient. And the classic example here, I, I dare say, would be wanting to take a blood sample when it's not clinically indicated in that case. And so for this, and at that point, at that level, if you want to take a blood sample when it's not in the clinical interest of that patient to have a blood sample taken, you really then have to step under uh, onto the, the home office um, uh, sort of approval pathway, uh, which is done under the Animal Scientific um, Procedures Act. So all experimental work that's done on rodents and um, um, animals within the laboratory setting, almost all of that will be done under the Animal Scientific Procedures Act. So anyone that's undertaken experimental work on mouse models have to be authorised to do this. And that involves having working at a, a, a site that has an establishment license. You personally have to have a personal license and the project and the programme of work that you are delivering has to have a programme of work. 
Now, I think, you, you know, just to try and give you a sort of flavour of this, um, very, very few clinical research projects in the UK with all the sort of vast amounts of data that's now being produced um, in the UK, very few of those would be done under a home office licence. So the RVC has been the, the, the leader in this for a long period of time. They had a, a, a pan-hospital um, home office licence. And I, um, David, I'm sure, will speak um, a bit more about this, um, or can speak more about this if people want. Um, this is where, uh, in essence, there is a, 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 a pan-licence at which people then make amendments to then allow them to do particular programmes of work along a, a holistic licence that allows home office license projects to be undertaken on client-owned animals. And I think in many ways, even though this is about us doing investigations above and beyond what we're doing for, um, uh, for uh, uh, clinical purposes, it's absolutely self-regulating because these are people's pets. So invariably, the level of threshold on which most owners would see is acceptable. But it's absolutely fine to take one or two extra samples um, or is the view of many, many clients. Or it's absolutely fine for you to take an additional X-ray or additional pieces of imaging, if it just means that the anaesthetic is going to be prolonged for a short period of time, and the risk of any complications is very, very small. We've had very strong interest in this, and people really being very proactive for the two studies that we have in Edinburgh that are undergoing under the Home Office Licence. Um, really, collectively across the UK, there are many in academic institutes that, as far as I'm aware, don't have any active Home Office Licence projects. We've only had two in the last you know, several decades, as far as I'm aware, in Edinburgh. And that stemmed from me writing again on the RVC model, this pan-hospital licence that allows us to undertake this research uh, more objectively. And so really just sort of showing, you know, and perhaps in the questions, because this talk it really isn't very long, but perhaps in the questions we can talk through where the grey zones are. Because some of the things, if you wanted to do perhaps to develop a control panel for an ACTH stimulation test, this is something that would really be very, very difficult to do outside of a home office licence. Because you're giving a pet um, an agent which is not in their interests, and you're then taking repeated blood samples, or in this case at least two blood samples, to then see whether the, this test, or to provide parameters for this test to see whether it's useful. So interpretations vary between ethics committees, but a lot of ethics committees would be uncomfortable about that taking place um, under um, the, the Veterinary Surgeons Act. So I think when, as practitioners, you're formulating um, you know, your, your thoughts as to what you're going to do, think this is the key thing. Can it be something that can be run alongside standard clinical practice, or are you going to have to do something which, quite honestly, you wouldn't already or wouldn't typically do to that patient? And perhaps the final point just to make on the Home Office Licence, people shouldn't see this as an insurmountable hurdle. It's a pain to do this. Um, it requires you to go on these courses. It requires you to get an establishment licence. You know, it is dozens and dozens of pages of text that then has to be filled in to do your work. But it is achievable. And if the question that you have is, you know, of such major interest to you and that you are extremely motivated to do it, please don't see this as being an insurmountable challenge because it isn't. It is something that, 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 that can be accomplished within the practice scenario. And I know of at least one practice in the UK at the moment that has a home office licence because they've got such a strong academic practice relationship and it's something that they're very, very keen to do. So it, it goes without saying that if you're undertaking something under a home office licence, um, there's very, very well-established protocols for the ethical review process for this. But I think the college is keen to emphasise just because it's not done under a home office licence doesn't mean that it doesn't require ethical review. 
We were trying to encourage a culture that almost any clinical study, from whether it's the questionnaire type point of view or whether it's something um, you know, more complex, would try and get ethical review just to give you, if nothing else, protection that you've followed best practice and that you've done all that you can to ensure that your work adheres to a high standard of practice. And I think the, the added in this joint working party statement that takes this pragmatic um, view or pragmatic threshold that the need for a formal ethical review is any study where a reasonable person would expect to obtain permission from owners or keepers of an animal before including that animal in that study. So really, I would say anything that goes above and beyond what you're doing as part of standard clinical practice and requires any access or retention of information or any retention of samples, anything where there's even the slightest bit of grey area, I would encourage everyone to undertake an ethical review just to make sure, if at the very least, you're, you're protected. Now, the college has put through some examples here that might be, um, um, of, uh, might be possible to undertake this outside of an ASPA. And the first thing that they've put on there is clinical trials of new medicine with a, a view to product registration. Now, I would say this is one of the most complex areas um, that's currently um, ongoing in terms of discussions with, with the Home Office. And myself and um, David Argyle at the Vet School have had a number of meetings down in London with senior Home Office officials to try and bring a bit of clarity in terms of what is the framework around clinical trials and what legislation and what pathways do we have to go down. And I think the steer from the Home Office now at this quite senior level, is very, very clear in terms of there's any evidence of a dose escalation. And that dose escalation isn't about finding the highest acceptable or highest um, drug to have uh, before toxicity sets in. It's just the highest threshold, in many ways, the lowest acceptable um, treatment response. So you're basically just trying to find the dose that is effective for that patient. And you're doing this from starting from a very low dose to a dose at which then starts to have clinical effects without causing any significant side effects. If you're doing that dose finding study, it has to be done under a home office license. So there are some studies of licensed products where you're trying to find a new um, angle for this and you want to do it against a placebo group. There are some that can be done under essentially the Veterinary Surgeons Act with VMD um, test certificate approval running alongside of that. But I think if it has any evidence of any level of dose escalation, you really do have to um, get into discussions with your local home office official. And based on all our experience, they're now trying to develop really quite a standardised national framework to suggest that these really do have to be driven under the um, home office licences. But other things that might be a bit more flexible about being able to undergo just under uh, standard clinical practice and falling out with ASPA would be things such as using existing licensed medicines, collections of, of um, fluids or tissues that would otherwise be discarded as clinical waste, again with client consent for future anonymized analysis, um, questionnaires, and studies where data or larger clinical samples um, are, are required. So, again, this sort of discussion, and I think this is how I would encourage people to try and think about it, is about trying to work out where it falls. Does it fall under the Veterinary Surgeons Act or does it fall under the ASPA Act? So, just to talk a little bit about the ethics research panel, which is um, why I'm here today. So, this was um, a, a, an initiative that goes back to 2011, and there was this joint working party between the RCVS and BVA to look at how ethics review worked in practice. And I think at that point, and I'd been involved in a, a, a practice-based study here that was really struggling to try and get access to an academic um, review 
process. And I think it really highlighted to me the value of this and why I'm very, very keen that this whole initiative has come to pass. Because I think if you're in practice, it is actually, unless you have an academic partner as part of that, I think it's very, very difficult for you to access ethical review panels. And this is the clear, unambiguous aim of this process, really, is to provide this ethical review panel for people that are within practice that just want to get on and do it by themselves without having um, any additional input from academia. And I think that's something um, upon which we would really like to see that sort of um, ethos thrive. So the RCVS Council agreed in 2015 to set this up. And so we're now entering this one-year trial period of this ethics review panel. Um, and it's run by the RCVS with mentorship and applications from BSAVA and BVNA. And again, this just highlights the fact that this is really pitched at people that are working in practice that don't have access um, to ethics review panels within their institutes. So if you've got that, then I would um, you know, suggest that this is all um, entirely redundant. And this trial is running for one year initially. So this is why I was keen to come along today to try and raise awareness of this program because it's something that if it isn't taken up and it isn't used by the profession, it will disappear. So hopefully, even if we can only get a handful initially, we can hopefully make this a very positive process for people that submit applications um, and we can then keep this initiative going. Because I think if this dies, then um, I think it will be rather hard to resurrect and this might be a very, very useful thing for people in practice to have access to um, and it's difficult to do it really without really significant involvement from the RCVS. So I think they've been very progressive at setting this up and I, I really hope this whole thing thrives. So in terms of its structure, it's made up of four vets, one nurse, one lay member, and it's led by um, Professor David Morton, who has a, a long-standing and distinguished background as, being, as a veterinary ethicist. Um, and people really come at this from very, very different backgrounds, and it's very, very sympathetic to the challenges, but equally to the opportunities that exist within practice. Um, and so there's, uh, you know, the range of expertise comes from people with an interest in home office work and experimental work right through to people doing qualitative research on, on practice scenarios. The one thing that I would perhaps stress is the fact that this is an ethical review panel. It doesn't provide any real feedback um, on the absolute quality or the needs or the intellectual value of the work that's been underdone. Now, if there are major problems, then it might be that, that some points are raised. But by and large, it tries to be as neutral as possible about the intellectual merit of the proposal and really just thinks about the ethical implications of the proposed work. And the second unashamed plug that I would give is for people involved in um, small animal practice, Nick Jeffries has set up a project um, called a Clinical uh, Research Assessment Group, this CRAG group that now runs out of JSAB. And this is, again, something that I'd really encourage people to use. It's something that hasn't been used that heavily at this point in time, but this is a three-person panel with myself, Nick is editor of JSAB and a, a colleague from the USA. And so what we were able to do is to actually have a look at... Um, proposals that come in predominantly from practice um, where they then get reviewed if we feel like it's of suitable quality and it's the results um, are going to be of suitable value whether they're negative or positive so even if it's a negative result um, and doesn't have quite the excitement of, of having a positive result even if it's a null result what you will have is if it's been approved by CRAG you will have fast track publication into JSAB. 
So hopefully this is again another mechanism running alongside the ethics review panel, uh, uh, panel that will allow people on the one hand to get advice about design of their project, how they're framing their question, power calculations, this sort of thing that is really required to make this project a real success that will then run along the ERP that provides this ethical review framework that then will allow people to get on and um, essentially undertake their, 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 their projects in the practice environment. So um, the, the crag that's run by BSAVA would be the point of contact for people involved in small animal practice. And again, some of the points that the college have just mentioned there are obviously um, obvious to us all. This idea of discussing your ideas with colleagues, peer review, this constant discussion about you know, refining and discussing ideas are just very, very useful scientific tools that I'm, I'm sure we would all agree would be helpful in refining and um, improving proposals. So in terms of um, what the ethics review panel are interested in, it's actually very, very straightforward. To complete the um, application form is not an arduous job. It's a few pages. And really the things that the college is keen for you to think about is really just to think about the undesirable potential outcomes or the potential harms that might happen during the study, often of which are actually very, very, very slight. So this is actually something that's really very straightforward. But also it gives you an opportunity to give the sellers the potential benefits. So if there's something about the work that could be of real benefit, it allows you to sort of sell this um, and to highlight the value of this um, in, in the proposal. Make it clear to the clients of the alternatives. And so really highlighting the fact that they don't have to participate and non-participation won't in any way affect their, their treatment or their experience at the, at the practice. This is just an opportunity for them to do it. And and I think, you know, what we've had certainly in academia is this almost reluctance um, in some quarters about engaging clients to do this. And they're scared that we're going to have the sort of daily mail angle again of thinking that, you know, people are doing vivisection and experimental work on pets and this is something that people feel very uncomfortable with whereas actually all my experiences have been remarkably positive and people are almost aghast that we're not doing this as part of our standard routine practice and this idea about us retaining residual clinical samples as a standard in Edinburgh you know people just expect this is happening in the background anyway and this idea that we're just going to chuck it out because we can't be bothered to store it um, is something that kind of appalls appalls many pet owners so I think um, you know what we find is that the vast majority of clients are extremely enthused about doing work which they feel is a benefit to the, the, the pet owning communities. Also, it's very important in the information, the written information you impart to the client that they can withdraw from the research at any time. Um, and then again, just ensure that a vet who's familiar with the proposed research um, or, or the suitable person, you know, particularly if it's a nurse-led project, is available to answer any client questions. And given clients an opportunity to ask questions and in some ways a cooling off period is also considered just to be very standard good practice. I think this is my last slide. Um, so this is really just to say that again emphasize this has been start this initiative has started um, from the 1st of August um, and again if you have people or colleagues in practice please encourage them to use this. We do need to have some evidence of uptake within the pr profession or some evidence that this is a value for it to be maintained. Um, and I really hope it does, because I think over time this will become a, a very, very useful initiative and a panel for, for people wanting to undertake research in practice, which I think is going to become an, an increasingly important theme. Um, the application and the deadlines um, are, are all on there. And as soon as you submit a form, I think the pathway is 
uh, on the website, but it's actually a very fast turnaround, and we'll try and get the information and the feedback to you as quickly as possible. Um, and we'll certainly try and do all we can to enter into a very constructive dialogue with you. Um, and even if it's about study design, then people are very welcome to contact me through the CRAG initiative, um, or just you know, contact me anyway, and I'm very happy to do all I can to help. Yep, so I think that's me. So, many thanks, and uh, thank you again to the Royal College for preparing the slides, and um, I'm very happy to take any questions.